ask you to turn with me to the chapter that we had read this morning as our scripture lesson from the Gospels, Matthew chapter 2. We'll be studying verses 13 through 18. Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 13. This is a day which most churches celebrated last Sunday, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, you see written at the top of the bulletin. It's a day that's set aside each year for churches in this country to remember those who have no voice, the unborn children who have been killed and who are being killed in our nation. It's celebrated at this time of year because it was, uh, I think, this past Tuesday when the, issue, when the uh, decision was issued by the Supreme Court, I think it was a five to two majority, written by Chief Justice Blackmun, uh, a decision to outlaw, to throw out the laws of all 50 states of the Union, uh, opposing the killing of unborn children in the wombs of their mothers. In one fell swoop, uh, with an act of great evil and wickedness, uh, those men who had been called as an act of public service to protect the innocent and defenseless declared war on them, and almost immediately, speaking historically, the entire evangelical church fell in line behind the Supreme Court justices and uh, really had no conscience and no voice against it. Some of you are, find that hard to believe because you live in a context where it's sort of defined that Republicans and evangelical Christians are pro-life and are against abortion. But it did not used to be this way. I can very clearly remember attending a uh, lecture series by a man who uh, went on to become the Surgeon General, C. Everett Koop, who was the, really the pioneer pediatric surgeon in the world at Children's Memorial Hospital. He worked on my brothers and also on me at one time. Um, and Francis Schaefer, a great prophet of the Reformed world and the Christian world, when they came to Denver and gave a film series and lecture series on the evil of abortion, and they had just been giving that same series in Chicago. And I remember distinctly their saying that when they went to Chicago that they called, I think it was 14 or 17 evangelical leaders from the Wheaton area and invited them to come to this lecture series, and they said not one of them came. And that was really the climate that prevailed at that time back in the 70s among evangelicals. Evangelicals were indifferent to the shedding of blood in this country of the unborn and really did not have a grasp on the teaching of Scripture about this great evil. Well, we live in a different time. We live in a time when we look at each other and we're kind of assured that everybody in this church shares a perspective on the unborn, that they're uh, children, that from the time of conception we're dealing with a human life that even though that human life can't speak, can't communicate, that it is a person. That personhood is not a function of our intellectual abilities or communication, as many philosophers would like to say, but that personhood is something that comes by virtue of the creative decree of God. 
We have been instructed that when John the Baptist left in the womb of his mother on recognition of Jesus in the womb of his mother, that this gives us an indication of the agency of God in the womb of, unborn, of, of women carrying unborn children. And it also gives us a picture of the personhood of those children, that John the Baptist would begin his work while he was in the womb of proclaiming the coming of his Messiah. Um, and so we think it ends. Some of us in this church we know are more faithful than others in picketing the abortion clinic and working at the crisis pregnancy center. And some of us write letters to the editor. And isn't it good that we have those people in our church that do this? And yet we really show uh, uh, an effeminacy, a very weakened and soft understanding of the nature of the evil. And even those among us who are most zealous to protect the unborn really have very little concept of the interrelated evils that have given issue to Roe v. Wade as an opinion and have caused the evangelical church to be so, so flabby and, and, and facile and, and cheesy in its response to this, thinking that voting at the polls is all that is called of most of us. And so I want to make the case this morning that if we believe in the God of Scripture, we must have a world view. It's not sufficient simply to work at the Crisis Pregnancy Center and write letters to the editor. But we have to have a vision of this world and of the lives of this world, which is full-orbed, which is holistic, which is uh, manly, which is biblical. And it goes far beyond the issue of abortion and children in the wombs of their mothers. If you go to the Museum of Science and Industry, we, growing up in Chicago, went there, and we loved the coal mine, and we loved the submarine or the U-boat. And there were a number of exhibits that really caught our attention. But when I became an adult, I saw with the eyes of a man. And I came out of a door one day, and in a hallway upstairs, I saw a bunch of, uh, what would you say, glass jars, I guess. And I noticed that there was an intensity about everyone looking at those jars. I hadn't seen in any other exhibit. And then I looked again, and inside every jar from the time of conception to the time of full term was a collection of unborn children who were dead. And I thought as I looked at that, that the real problem in America today is that for the first time ever, we have a whole class of victims who can, by definition, never speak. And I was looking at an exhibit that was the closest thing I had ever seen to the voice of the unborn. Jews, some of them survived. And some of them had children that set up Holocaust museums. And I thought to myself, what this country needs is a museum to the Holocaust of unborn children. We need a museum that will have all of the different tools and machines that have been used to rip to shreds unborn children in their mother's wombs. And we need to know who the manufacturers were. We need to know who sat on the board of directors of the com companies that made those machines. We need to have them in all their cold steel. 
We need to see pictures of the doctors and nurses who took money to kill unborn children. And then we need to see pictures of their houses. And we need to see pictures of their cars. And we need to know where their children went to college and how much it cost. We need to see pictures of little babies. In fact, I think what would work is, like an aquarium, you walk between the walls of the fish and the sea. We need to have an aquarium of unborn children in solution. And we need to have hundreds of thousands. And you walk down a hall, and these babies are on top of you and over you, and they're all in solution. And you can see what just this one nation does year after year, 1.3 to 1.5 million. And then we stop and think that the World Health Organization, not a Christian body by any stretch of the imagination, estimates that there are between 50 and 60 million unborn children a year who are killed. 50 to 60 million. And so we look at that and we say, yes, they can't speak, but maybe a museum like that would give them voice. But we live in a culture that's very evil, a culture that it's extremely difficult to even conceive of this evil in a biblical way and to respond to it biblically because the pressures on us are so insidious, they're so deep, they're so devious, they're so deceptive. This last week I was driving to the office and I heard that usually fairly innocuous program on public radio called A Moment for Science. And this particular one was anything but innocuous. This one was talking about the rate of child abuse within the religious community. And it was science. And so they used statistics. And they spoke of a study that had recently been completed by a woman, I forget where she was, somewhere out west, I believe, who did an analysis of the rate of child abuse by religious leaders as opposed to by the population at large. She looked at the statistics and tried to analyze whether the current scandal in the Roman Catholic Church is any indication of the character and practice of religious leaders like rabbis and pastors and priests. And the hypothesis is, if we hear so much about the Roman Catholic Church, maybe this is an indication of religious leaders in general and what their treatment of children is. And sure enough, they said that, I think their words were, that the reality is even worse than what you would imagine. What they found was that, as they put it, men who hold positions of authority in the religious community abuse children at a rate far higher than any other category of people in, in, in the nation, or than the population at large, excuse me. And they said not just abuse them sexually, but abuse them physically by using intense punishment against the children. And the moral of the story was that sophisticated people who listen to public radio will learn that authority is by nature evil and that religious authority is particularly evil and particularly abusive. 
and enlightened people will be on their guard against religion and against those who hold authority in religion. Now, I want to say, first of all, we deserve it. The absence of accountability of pastors and priests for our actions is uh, very clear and true. But I thought about what was going on in that, and it really was a commercial under the guise of pure science. And really, we all knew that public radio would come out in that direction. And I thought, how will my sheep ever be able to stand against such sophisticated rhetoric? Because it's copying a posture of being pure science. And we've all been told that we live in a post-enlightenment time that science is science. You can't argue with it. It's objective. It doesn't lie. There's statistics behind it. And we even know the quote that there are three kinds of lies, lies, damned lies, and statistics. But even knowing that, we're not strong enough to stand against such a commercial, such a raw use of the power of the mass media. And I was thinking, well, I should write an opposing piece and ask for time. And then I just thought, I can't spend all my time doing that. And then all of a sudden, I was thinking, and it hit me. Who was this woman who read this moment of science? And I thought to myself, what does she think of the unborn children? And then all of a sudden, like Psalm 73, you know, all of a sudden he came into the house of God and it became clear that their feet are on a slippery slope and that God will dash them to pieces. All of a sudden, it became very apparent to me that the big lie that's so huge that nobody sees it in this country is the fact that enlightened people are the advocates of the weak and of the oppressed. And we just accept it as if the Democratic Party is, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the sponsor of all classes of oppressed people because, after all, uh, African Americans vote for the, for the Democratic candidate. And Republicans don't, and therefore Republicans are oppressors, and Democratic people and Democratic Party people are the uh, rescuers of the oppressed. Until you stop and realize that central to the platform of the Democratic Party is a protection of the right of women to kill their babies in their wombs. And again, at a rate of 1.3 million a year. And all of a sudden, when you stop and think about abortion in this country, all of a sudden, everything gets flipped upside down. Now, don't, don't, don't expect me to defend the Republican Party on abortion. I have nothing but revulsion for the Republican Party. Sometimes I have to vote for them. But I don't, for a minute, think that the Republican Party is... is, 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 uh, is uh, uh, I, I believe Republicans really care about money. Okay? That's what I believe. And I vote Republican. But I only vote for Republican for one reason. I hope somehow, sometime, there will actually be a Republican candidate like Henry Hyde, who actually stands up for the unborn children and for the newly born who are defective, like Baby Doe at our hospital, and for the old people who are dying. I hope someday the Republicans will find a conscience on this matter and will stop simply being... Uh, expedient users of pro-life people. 
there's a, there's a quote I love by Joe Sobern who says, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me three times, I'm a Republican. <laughs> I do believe that all schemes of political improvement, as Samuel Johnson said, are laughable things. Vote. I have no, heart, no, no, no hesitation in saying vote pro-life. But don't think that this is going to solve our problems. They go much deeper. We have this moment of science. And we're intimidated. And we think, oh, what are we going to do? Our pastors and our priests are abusing children and teaching us to abuse them by spanking them. Okay? And so what do we respond to that? Well, the first thing we respond is by remembering that the people who are trying to warn us against the abuse of pastors are the very people who would be first in line to defend a woman's right to choose. And so if you take 1.3 million babies in this country alone a year and you set them up against them copying a posture as being the advocates for the oppressed, the dissonance ought to make you go crazy. It just absolutely is not true that progressive, enlightened, democratic people in this country are the advocates for the oppressed. That's how they come off, but it is, not, it is a great lie. And so this should start you thinking in a prophetic way about American culture. When you hear that woman's voice, she tells you it's science, and she tells you your pastor is abusing his children and yours if, if you'll let him. Okay? You need to stop and say, but wait a second. Is she at the abortion clinic picketing? Pick, pick and is she at the crisis pregnancy center caring for women with crisis pregnancies? And is she writing letters to the editor defending baby doe? If she had been a nurse, would she have refused to follow the doctor and judge's orders? And would she have fed baby doe as it cried for, what, five days before it starved to death in our hospital? And the answer is, and I don't know the woman... The answer is no. And so immediately you cut the umbilical cord to our culture. You stop being intimidated by all the lies. People telling you that religion is the source of all this oppression and you know, religious leaders are evil. And you say, wait a second, I'm going to think biblically. I'm going to have a worldview, and that worldview is going to come from Scripture, and it's going to give me independence from all this cheap rhetoric that the mass media are filled with. Okay? You say, I'm going to be a Christian. I'm going to think biblically. I'm going to have a Christian mind. I'm not going to think first, oh, what will all the people in this classroom think of me if I say that? But I'm going to think first, what will God say to me if I don't speak? That's going to be where you start. And then you're going to start thinking about all of the things and all of the lies and all of the oppression. And you're not just going to think about this country, but you're going to think about the whole world because the whole world belongs to God. It's not our God in America is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ and over in India it's a different God. No, the whole world belongs to God. And so you can take captive every nation, every culture, every ethnic group. You can take it all captive for Christ. You can think biblically and you can have a worldview. Now, this morning, I want us to see Roe v. Wade and the killing of unborn children in a larger context. And this is going to be a stretch for you, but I want you to follow me. Okay? I want to shake you up, and I want to get you so that you don't know where your legs are underneath you, like when you get off a horse after riding it for a long time. 
right? Okay? I want your, your legs to be a little bit shaking when we get done. And I want to start by asking you, how did the Jews react to the wise men when they came to Jerusalem? The Jews reacted by doing what? They said, okay, we know what's going on. The Messiah is going to be where? It says in verse 5 of our text, in Bethlehem of Judea. So the Jews, the religious leaders, just went to the Old Testament. They said, okay, here's what's happening. Here's where he'll be. Now, Jesus did not yet represent a threat to them that they recognized. They were still ignorant. They still thought the Messiah was somebody that they could look forward to, somebody that would be good for them, right? But right out of the gate, there is someone for whom Jesus was a threat. Because we see that when they reported this to Herod, what was Herod's response? It says, verse 7, Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And right away you see this brain of Herod doing his calculations. This man is a world-class political leader. He knows exactly what he's doing. It says right there that he is what? That he is calculating, determining the exact time. Now, up until now, Herod was convinced that he was secure in his kingdom and power, but the birth of a tiny baby in a small and insignificant Bethlehem struck such fear into his heart that he broke into a cold sweat and began to scheme privately to murder this baby who was called the king of the Jews. Then in verse 8, it says what? It says, He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Now, what's he doing? Well, he's lying. Because he really intends to go and kill the baby. He doesn't intend to worship him. This baby is a threat to him. Very interesting, though, that his lies put him in the, put him in the character of being a very religious man. Sometimes, when you think of mainline denominational churches, all right, and you think of churches where there is no prophetic voice in the pulpit, where the people are just reassured that they're okay every Sunday that they come, and that uh, the essence of religion is brotherly love, all right, you stop and you say, why? I don't understand this. Why would people give themselves to such uh, a, a tepid and uh, milquetoast religion. Why bother? Why spend week after week showing up at church and giving your money away for something that doesn't have a God? You know, because a God by definition is something larger than you are. And the one thing you know when you go in those churches is that that God is not larger than you are. In fact, he's just you. You know, he's sort of this civic religion, sort of pathetic, sort of, you know, nothing God. And he doesn't ever rebuke you, and you don't ever leave in tears. And so you say, why? And I remember talking to Mary Lee's brother, Peter, one time. And I was saying to him, why do people go through the charade? And Peter said this. He said, people like to be religious. And I thought, yep, 
That's absolutely true. Well, here's what Calvin says about Herod here, who, who wants to worship. You know, he wants to go worship the child. So he's copying a posture as being a religious man. And Calvin says, all godless men readily subscribe to God in general terms. But when God's truth begins to press them more closely, they spew out the venom of their spleen. As long as the godless believe that they are losing nothing, they allow God and Scripture a measure of respect. But when it comes to close range, and Christ engages in battle with their self-seeking, their greed, their luxury, their false confidence, their hypocrisy, and their deceptions, then they forget all self-control and they rush into a frenzy. And this is Herod. Look at verse 9. It says, After hearing the king, this is Herod, they, the wise men, went their way, and the star they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. We have the scene of the wise men, the magi, coming to Jesus, to the little infant. And then in verse 12 it says, Having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the magi left for their own country by another way. And then we pick up our sermon text with verse 13. Now, when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity. From two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. This is God's word and it is eternally true. Now who is this man Herod? He's called Herod the Great to distinguish him from other Herods who ruled also. He was born around 74 B.C. and he died by Josephus, the Jewish historian of the time. He died around 4 B.C. Now, Rome had appointed Herod's father as ruler over Judea, the land of the Jews, in 47 B.C. And his son Herod was made Tetrarch of Galilee. Then later, invasion by the Parthians and an ensuing civil war caused Herod to flee to Rome for protection. Around 40 BC, Herod was given an army by the Roman Senate and told to go back to Judea and use force to bring it under control. And at that time, he was also nominated king of Judea. Herod's great ambition in life was to rule, and he used the army as well as innumerable wily schemes to get his kingdom. By 37 BC, his kingdom included all of Palestine as well as areas of what we now know as Jordan and Syria and Lebanon. One Bible student writes, quote, he had indeed become the king of the Jews, and amid fierce and protracted struggles, he jealously clung to his position of authority until his day of death. Now, Herod the Great, spoken of here in Scripture, is memorable for many things. 
As I go through them, I want you to think about the United States and its position in the world. First of all, he is memorable for his military conquests. He cleaned up much of the countryside from roaming bands of marauders and showed great bravery during these raids himself. He succeeded in defending his kingdom against a number of military challengers. He was a military conqueror. Second, he's memorable for his skills in diplomacy. New rulers installed by Rome in neighboring districts were often quickly won over by Herod's charm and his well-placed bribes. He was a consummate diplomat. Third, he was memorable for his political strategy. He proved himself invaluable to his superiors by being an excellent collector of the imperial taxes in his early years. He survived 33 years in his position amid the most intense palace intrigues, managing to transfer his allegiances from one Roman emperor to another without losing his head, literally. He was a great politician. <coughs> Fourth, he's memorable for his architectural vision and public works. He built many wonderful structures in and around Jerusalem. He built an amphitheater. He built a theater. He built a hippodrome, a luxurious palace for himself. And he refurbished and enlarged the temple in Jerusalem. This temple that is spoken of in Matthew 24, it says Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And so you get a feeling for the radical uh, sedition that Jesus would have been viewed as committing at that moment in speaking that way of this glorious temple that was made by this great leader. Josephus records for us that Herod, desiring to win public support, explained the building of the temple to the Jews by saying this, and this is a quote. Herod said, I have built this temple, quote, to make a thankful return after the most pious manner to God. For the blessings I have received from him, who has given me this kingdom, and to do this by making his temple as complete as I am able. Unquote. It's much like a president having Billy Graham appear at an inaugural. The utility of religion. All across his land, there were other structures and glorious cities that were built. He was a great public works man. I thank you very much. Today. He's memorable for the great number of wives he had. He was a he was a he was a, a great husband. He had ten wives. He's memorable for his social welfare concerns and the way he wisely used his office and wealth to seek and to buy the approval of his subjects. There was a great famine at one point. And the famine was so bad that it went on a couple of years and he had no money and no wealth himself to help his subjects. And so he went down and he made a pact with the ruler of Egypt and got the ruler of Egypt to export corn. And it came up into Palestine and 
He then spread it around, minding everyone where it had come from. He even clothed people who were too poor to cover themselves in, in the cold because their animals had, not, uh, had died and were not able to give them the wool that they could spin for clothing. And during those years, he created a, a sort of cult of himself by being the savior, much as Joseph was viewed as the savior of Egypt at another time. And he manipulated and used this time to great effect in creating uh, goodwill. And this was at a time when the Jews hated his guts. And yet he used the famine in such a way that by the time it was over, all they had for him was gratitude and they had let bygones be bygones. He was a very, very bright politician. He was memorable, though, ultimately for his love of power. And that's what we see in the text that we have read. But it was a lifelong habit of his. Life was nothing if it needed to be sacrificed in the interest of protecting his power. It was on the altar of his power that he sacrificed his own brother-in-law. It was on the altar of his power that he sacrificed at least three of his sons taking their life. It was on the altar of his power that he sacrificed his beloved wife, Mary Ann, taking her life. And we saw here this morning, on the altar of his power, he sacrificed all the children, two years of age and under, in Bethlehem in the surrounding area. One author of the ancient world, speaking of how proverbial the cruelty of Herod was in the ancient world, recorded a winning saying of Augustine. Uh, excuse me, not Augustine, but Augustus. And Augustus said this. He said, quote, I would rather be Herod's pig than his boy, unquote. Now, there's one other thing that Herod the Great is memorable for. He died a terrible death. His entire body was being eaten by various diseases. And the description of it in Josephus, which I read last night and have here, but I, I won't read it, but it, it's gruesome. Uh, it's hard to imagine the suffering that this man went through at the end of his life as he was desperately trying to hold on to his power, desperately trying to fight off palace intrigues and assassination attempts right up to the end of his life. But the most awful thing about this man is how he decided he wanted to go out. He decided that he wanted to go out in a blaze of glory. But he knew he had a problem, and that is that rulers who are loved, when they die, are mourned. And he knew that no one would mourn him. He had succeeded in creating only hatred in the hearts of his family and absolutely everyone around him. And so what did he do? Well, we are told... Near his death, I'm reading from Josephus, the Jewish historian at the time, he contrived the following wicked scheme. He commanded that all the principal men of the entire Jewish nation, wherever they lived, should be called to come to him. Accordingly, they were a great number that came because the whole nation was called and all men heard of his call and death was the penalty of any that would despise the letters that were sent to call them to come to him. And now the king, Herod, was in a wild rage against them all, the innocent as well as those that had afforded ground for accusations. And when they were come, he ordered them all to be shut up in the Hippodrome. And then he sent for his sister, Salome, and her husband, Alexis, 
And he said this to them. He said, quote, I shall die in a little while, so great are my pains. But what principally troubles me is this, that I shall die without being lamented and without such mourning as men usually expect at a king's death. And Josephus adds an editorial note saying, Herod was not unacquainted with the temper of the Jews, that his death would be a thing very desirable and exceedingly acceptable to them. And then continuing, Herod wanted to have a great mourning at his funeral, and such as never any king before him had had, for then the whole nation would mourn from their very soul, which otherwise would be done in sport and mockery only. And so he desired that as soon as they see that he had given up the ghost, they would place soldiers around the Hippodrome while they did not know that he is dead, the people in the Hippodrome, and that they would not declare his death to the multitude until this is done, but they would give orders to have those that were in custody shot with their darts, and that this slaughter of all of them in the Hippodrome would cause that there would not be any missing, but all would die on his account. And that as he died, they would make him secure that his will would be executed in what he charged them to do and that he would have the honor of a memorable mourning at his funeral. He deplored his condition and with tears in his eyes, he pleaded with his sister and her husband by the kindness due from them as his family and by the faith they owed to God, he begged them that they would not hinder him of this honorable mourning at his funeral. And so they promised him that they would obey his commands. Now anyone may easily discover the temper of this man's mind, Josephus ends, who gave order that one out of every family should be slain, although they had done nothing that was unjust or that was against him, nor were they accused of any other crimes. And so he set all the principal men of the kingdom in this hippodrome and he ordered that one out of every family in the nation would be killed at the moment of his death so that every family would be in mourning. And on God's word and on their commitment to him as a family, he made them agree that they would carry out his instructions when he died. This is the man, Herod. I will tell you that uh, by God's common grace, the, his instructions, in fact, were not carried out. When he died, they did not follow through on their commitments to him, and so these men were not killed. Well, this is the man who, in response to the birth of the king of Jews, when he realized the wise men had outwitted him, it says, verse 16, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity, from two years old and under, according to the time he had determined from the Magi. And this is what traditionally we call the slaughter of the innocents. Now, how many babies were killed? Well, probably under 50. Maybe as few as 10 to 15 babies. We think that there must have been thousands, but there weren't. And were these babies in an absolute sense innocent? No, they had original sin. They had inherited the sentence of death that comes from our federal head, Adam. In sin, my mother conceived me. King David confesses in Psalm 51, verse 5. 
But what were these babies? These babies were not a threat to King Herod. They had done nothing against anyone at this point in their lives. They were not even capable of understanding the notion of leaders, let alone political leaders. And they intended harm to no one. A number of years ago, I was reading a quote of a soldier from Vietnam who was describing a particular firestorm. And he said about he and his comrades in Vietnam during the Vietnam War, he says, we lit out 800 meters to a landing zone with one Victoria Charlie and her three-month-old baby as prisoners of war. We just made her a widow, and with all the steel flying in that hollow, she was lucky to have escaped unscathed. But I will say that there was not a man among us who wasn't glad the child wasn't hit, as nobody had seen either of them during the fight. We'd shoot a female out there without blinking an eye, as a woman with a rifle can kill you just as dead as any slant-eyed Hector or Ulysses. But, he says this, a baby is nobody's enemy. But these babies were the enemy of King Herod, and he slaughtered them. Now, what is there to learn from this text? What can we take from this text to be wise today? Well, one of the things we can take from this text is that men will do almost anything to protect their power. Almost anything. And it's a despicable thing when they kill their citizens. It's a despicable thing when they kill citizens of other nations who have not... Uh, presented any real threat to them. It's particularly despicable when they turn to their own subjects and are willing to slaughter them to save their own skin, as Hitler did with the Jews and with Christians and with uh, many classes of people. But it's particularly wicked when they do it to their own families and when they do it to babies. A number of years ago, I was reading an account of Russia coming into Afghanistan, very different empire taking Afghanistan at that time. Doris Lessing wrote an article on the uh, fighting going on there. And she wrote this. She says, as always, every story about Russia coming into Afghanistan, it began with these words, quote, the Russians bombed our village and we came over the mountains to this place. A woman said that when the Russians found people in a village, they slit the woman's stomachs and killed the children, quote, for fun, unquote. I think it's very telling that the Russians did that, but I think it's even more telling that when the New Yorker wants to sum up the wickedness of Russia in taking this country, they don't stop with the killing of men or the killing of women or the killing of unborn, but the very apex of the wickedness of Russia, the New Yorker says, is the fact that they took the bellies of pregnant women and ripped them open and killed the children in their wombs. And you'll notice this over time, that when someone wants to show an oppressor being absolutely despicably evil, they don't stop with their killing of unborn children, but they talk about the killing of unborn children within the wombs of their mothers. How could the New Yorker have such a piece in print and not see that every editorial piece it's ever run has been in defense of us doing this very thing in our nation? In lockstep, they defend Roe v. Wade. And then in Afghanistan, fault the Russians for doing precisely the same thing. I guess the principle is in, in Afghanistan, the Afghanistan women had no choice. 
So if you choose to kill your own child, it's an act of morality and self-determination. But if you take that choice from a woman who wants her child, it's an act of oppression. Well, I say that it's hypocrisy. If you look in the Old Testament, you will see that from beginning to end, it absolutely condemns all the taking of the life of unborn. In the Old Testament, minor prophet Amos, chapter 1, verses 13, it says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of the sons of Ammon and for four I will not revoke its punishment, because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their borders. And so just incidentally in the Old Testament, we see what God views the killing of unborn children as. He says, I'm going to wipe out these people. Why? Because just simply to get more territory, they were willing to rip open the bellies of pregnant women, killing the women and their children. And we have another example of infants being slaughtered. In the Old Testament, when Pharaoh, it said, looks at the Israelites, and it's a, gener- it's a Pharaoh that did not know Joseph. And it says in Exodus 1, Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. And then it says, Now a new king arose over Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them or else they will multiply. And in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. And he said to his people, let us deal wisely with them or else they will multiply. Pharaoh sought to deal shrewdly with the Israelites with craft and cunning. And the first tactic he chose was to put harsh taskmasters over them who would torment them by hard labor. But the Bible tells us that God was with his people and sought their blessing in the middle of their suffering. And how did he bless his people? It says in verse 12, The more they afflicted them, the more the Israelites multiplied, and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. He blessed them by giving them babies. The Israelites multiplied and the Egyptians lived in mortal fear. Then Pharaoh, having failed to rid himself of the threat the Israelites posed to his own people and nation, he adopted another tactic, and we read of it in verse 15. It says, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra, and the other was named Pua. And he said, When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth, and you see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives, we are told, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So, was Pharaoh's plan successful? No, because the midwives feared God rather than man and let the boys live. But Pharaoh was not so easily put off. He had another hack at it. And it says in verse 18, So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they're vigorous. And they give birth before the midwife can get to them. 
Note the loving and courageous acts by these Margie Heastons and Bowery Boatos of the ancient world. Their godliness, which is commended by God, is that they committed acts of civil disobedience and lying. And they refused to kill the little babies that the king had given them a direct command to kill. Rather, when questioned by Pharaoh, they said a lie. And how did God demonstrate his approval of these midwives protecting the children? It says, So God was very good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. It's amazing how much we as evangelicals, Bible-believing Christians, have sucked in our culture and we're oblivious to it. We read over this and we come away with it thinking, what a glorious person Corrie Ten Boom was. She protected children with her dad, right? And I'll get to Corrie Ten Boom in a second in, in, in Germany. But do we get the fact that both times the Bible tells us God approved and God blessed them? How? God blessed them by what? By what? By what? By having them have babies. This was a blessing. So I'm here, sitting here in front of the fireplace last night typing this up, right? And it's 1 o'clock in the morning because that's when I usually am. All right? And, and the phone rings. Well, it, when I was young, I could hop up from the floor easily, but not so much anymore. So I'm lumbering to my feet, you know, and I don't want everybody wakened by the phone. And I get to the kitchen, and it's rung three times, and it goes dead. And I go, oh, well, yeah, great. Well, as a matter of fact, I thought it was probably Joseph who was actually popping the question last night. So I really wanted to get to the phone to have the report of how it went, right? So I take the cordless over to the fireplace and sit myself down again. And immediately the phone rings again. And I pick up the phone and I say, hello. And it's Joseph, right? But it's not Joseph. It's Sam Borka. And he says, we had a baby. Okay. And he's on the subway in New York City going home from Mount Sinai Hospital. And he tells me about how they had midwives in the hospital. And then they had all these Hasidic Jews. And the, the minute the baby was born, it didn't go to the mother. It went to the father and all the religious leaders who began to say hocus-pocus over the baby. <laughs> okay? And Sam's going on about how, you know, and he's just telling me about this, this is like completely organic scene in Mount Sinai, all these women having babies. He said, but you know something? He says, everybody here thinks we're wacko because this is our fifth. He said there was like a couple that were like 39 or 40, and they just had their first baby, and they had like 35 people there to celebrate their first baby at the age of 39, right? And he said, they looked at me when I was holding my baby. They said, is this your first baby? I said, no, it's my fifth. He said, they were flabbergasted. <laughs> Sam and Elizabeth had been told it was a boy, but it wasn't. It was a girl. And her name is Anna. And the mother had an easy delivery. And how did God bless the Hebrews? How did he bless their midwives? He had them give birth to babies. Does your heart melt when I say this? Or are you stiff-necked? Are you hard-hearted? And have you decided that you're going to have a, uh, a, a, an American and a modern and an imperialistic attitude towards babies? 
What do you think of babies? Do you love them? What do you think of little children? If you're a man, what is your goal in life? Is your goal to make a name for yourself and to have power like Herod? Or is your goal to take responsibility for a mother and for her babies? You know, if you're as a man and you don't have a goal of having children that you are responsible for, you are not a man. And you say to me, well, what about single men? And I say, what do you think the Apostle Paul spent his life doing? He was called to singleness. You know what he spent his life doing? He spent his life being the Father Paul who had the whole New Testament church as his children. And every convert was his son. And every other elder was his brother. And the women were his mothers and his grandmothers. And the young women were his daughters and his sisters. And he was a man. And he was a father to the church. Yes, we believe in singleness, but not for the sake of a solipsistic, self-smug, satisfied, perverse, decadent, pathetically weak life that is singleness in America today, which is best personified by what program? Hmm? I don't even remember the name. Seinfeld. What a twisted and sick indication of our country. A bunch of narcissistic, solipsistic, single, self-referential, cynical, pathetically weak, unfruitful, uncommitted, funny people. You know that in the Old Testament, the people of God would fall into worshiping God the way their neighbors worshipped. And you know what they would do? They would take their children and they would put their children in the fiery mouth of the idol Moloch. And if you go to the Old Testament, you'll find a number of references to this. And do you know what the Bible says about this practice of taking little children of our own and giving them to this idol Moloch. You know what the Bible says about this? It's the most horrible statement that there is in the Old Testament. It says that this sin of giving our children to Moloch is a sin that what? It never occurred to the mind of God. We look today around us and we see giving of children, unborn children, to the mouth of Moloch, because the modern God is the God of self-determination and autonomy and convenience. And we look at the little children that are put in that fire and consumed, and we think, well, we wouldn't do that, and yet statistics tell us consistently the very people who are pro-life often have their own children have abortions when all of a sudden they find their children pregnant in the middle of going through college. And the scandal at Wheaton or Taylor would just be too much. The scandal at a Christian school of a high school woman being pregnant would be too much. And so we look at these women, and instead of them being surrounded by men, 
They're surrounded by pathetic weaklings who care more about their daughter's reputation and her convenience than they care about the protection of life. Never forget a woman in in my last church coming to me, broken, telling me that her father, when she went home, finding out she was pregnant, told her that he would not allow her to go back to IU until she killed her unborn child. And she wouldn't kill him. And so she sat at home and week after week of the second semester went by. And finally, having the complete disapproval and starved for affection because, of course, it wasn't just they wouldn't give her the money to go back, but she was persona non grata in the household. She finally gave in and had the abortion. She killed her unborn child. And then the arms of the father were open. And he restored her to his to his affection, to his love. And he opened his checkbook to her and he sent her back to school. And he sent her back to school, a broken woman. She had killed the fruit of her womb. And as evangelicals, we think how awful this is. But what we don't realize is that as we condemn it specifically here, In Bloomington, we promote it around the world with our tax dollars. We say, well, I would never counsel my roommate to do such a thing, and I'd find a home to adopt the child, and I'll go pick it, and I'll work at the Crisis Pregnancy Center as billions of dollars are sent from your pocketbook and mine by our nation all around the world, still doing the very same thing that Pharaoh did to the Hebrew babies, the very same thing that Herod did, and that is doing anything we can to keep the poor of this world from reproducing. And we look at that and we don't even think about it. You know, it's public policy and Christians don't get involved in public policy. We believe in personal piety. You know, we believe in, 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 in not in systemic evil. We believe in personal evil. You know, we believe in having our own hearts soft before the Lord and confessing our specific individual sins. You know, we, we don't have a worldview. We don't think about our nation And yet we go to Scripture and we see the nation of Egypt and we see the Roman Empire and we understand that this is systemic evil. We understand that Herod and all those who helped him had a personal responsibility for the slaughter of the infants. And we understand that these Hebrew midwives had a glorious worldview and that they were responsible for the protection of a whole category, of a whole generation of Hebrew children. And all we want to do is find a job, raise a family, be clean. But we don't have a worldview. And we don't grieve over our own nation's slaughter of the old and the young and the infirm. And we don't grieve over our nation's exporting of all of the sexual immorality and and our exporting of the sterilization of poor people around the world. I read an article this last month by E. Michael Jones, a fellow Hoosier. And he talks about America's role around the world of looking at the poor as a threat to us and trying to keep them from having babies. And he says this, 
He says, still today, virtually all of the international development agencies from USAID to UNAIDS hand condoms out for nothing. In April of 1965, right around the same time that the Supreme Court was getting ready to hand down its Griswold versus Connecticut decision, decriminalizing the sale of contraceptives, Kenya's Ministry of Economic Planning and Development approached John D. Rockefeller III's Population Council. Mr. Rockefeller was making significant progress toward his lifetime goal of promoting contraception and abortion among the world's reproducing masses. In April of 1965, Senator Ernest Gruning of Alaska began a series of congressional hearings on the alleged crisis of overpopulation at which Mr. Rockefeller would testify. For the next 10 years, from 1966 to 1976, the main excuse used to get Africans to use condoms was overpopulation. But Africans began to object to what they perceived as the racist, the even genocidal intent of the Population Council's program. One year after the program had been adopted, Kenyan author Grace Augett announced at a seminar on the topic, she said this, she said, quote, it would not be difficult to interpret the foreign experts' enthusiasm as a kind of neo-colonialist trick to keep the African population down. The year 1972 could be seen in many ways as the high watermark of the population control business in the name, by then, of fostering, quote, development, unquote. And the Agency for International Development, or USAID, was sponsoring projects like the famous flights over India, during which USAID workers literally tossed condoms by the shovelful out of airplanes as a way of promoting, quote, development in the country of India. American population control programs caused poor, illiterate Indians to be offered cheap transistor radios in exchange for getting themselves sterilized. Since the operations were normally performed under unsanitary conditions, many of these beneficiaries of international development eventually died. Robert McNamara stepped to the podium at Notre Dame University speaking at the commencement of 1969 and announced in the direst terms that, quote, the usual date predicted for the beginning of the local famines is 1975 to 1980. In making his statement, McNamara was simply following the lead of people like Paul Ehrlich, who wrote in the population bomb, quote, I have yet to meet anyone familiar with the situation who thinks India will be self-sufficient by 1971, if ever. By September 1977, which is to say two years after famine was supposed to have devastated India, the Indian grain reserve stood at about 22 million tons. And India began to be faced with the problem of how to store the stocks that overflowed warehouses and caused mounting storage costs so that they would not be ruined by rain or eaten by predators. By the mid-1970s, India began exporting food. But just a few years Robert, earlier, Robert McNamara had announced to the 1969 Notre Dame graduates that, quote, the population... 
The food population collision will duly occur. The attempts to prevent it or ameliorate it will be too feeble. Famine will take charge in many countries. It may become by the end of the period endemic famine. There will be suffering and desperation on a scale as yet unknown. Unquote. And what was his solution? He said, quote, family planning is going to have to be undertaken on a humane but massive scale. And so the United States government made population control a pillar of its foreign policy. On April 24, 1974, Henry Kissinger inaugurated that new era by sending to the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of Agriculture, the Director of the CIA, the Deputy Secretary of State, and the Administrator of the Agency for International Development with a copy to the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. A memorandum titled, quote, Implications of Worldwide Population Growth for U.S. Security and Overseas Interests. And speaking in that memo of the need to push population control among poor nations by all means possible, but also of the political risks involved in implementing such policies, Kissinger's National Security Memo, numbered 200, so you can still read it today. It's been declassified now. He said this. He said, quote, There is also the danger that some less developed country leaders will see developed country pressures for family planning as a form of economic or racial imperialism. This could well create a serious backlash. It is vital that the effort to develop and strengthen a commitment on the part of the less developed country leaders not be seen by them as an industrialized country policy to keep their strength down or to reserve resources for use by the rich countries. Development of such a perception could create a serious backlash adverse to the cause of population stability. So what on earth am I talking about? What I'm trying to show is that the resistance and the removal of children of the poor who are viewed as a threat by the rich leaders is with us to this day. It is the motivation behind USAID. It is the motivation behind the promotion of sterilization and birth control all over the world. It's being done with our money and it is part and parcel of the abortion culture. From the very beginning of Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger made it very, very clear what she was about. What are the quotes? Well, I'm reading from a Yale biography of Margaret Sanger that won the Bancroft Prize for American History. And this is what the author quotes Margaret Sanger from the very beginning saying, she says, quote, more children from the fit, less from the unfit. That is the chief issue of birth control. She says, quote, in a democracy, it is the representatives of this grade of intelligence who may destroy our liberties and who may thus be the most far-reaching peril to the future of civilization. This is Planned Parenthood. Will Durant, the great historian, with his wife, writer of that massive uh, history of the world, speaking at the 6th International Neo-Malthusian and Birth Control Conference in 1925, echoed Sanger's concerns. He said, quote, To offset the so-called yellow peril, the United States should spread birth control knowledge abroad so as to decrease the quantity of peoples whose unchecked reproduction threatens international peace. 
We listen to this and we think, well, I have no responsibility. I'm just one vote. I'm not in Washington. I'm not setting the policies. And yet, you know something? Every single time that we look down our noses at a mother who has given up a career to be at home with her children, we are creating the culture of imperialism that looks down its nose at poor people who choose to do the one thing God has made them able to do, which is to have babies. And they don't have to have the permission of their ruler to be fruitful and to multiply. And we read that God is the God of the orphans and the widows. And that God blesses people by giving them babies. And yet we have to be apologetic and act as if, well, really the norm is singleness and a sort of Seinfeld singleness, you know. And, and if there are some weird and gnarly Christians who choose to be fruitful and multiply, well, our country's wealthy enough to give them their option. But over in Pakistan, you know, and you remember Robertson of CNN fame saying, you know, well, you know, there are really too many Chinese. Remember him saying that? It's documented. Go on the Internet. And this is Christians in this country. We are more tied to our wealth and to our perquisites and to our privileges and to our homes and cars than we are tied to letting justice roll down. We don't care about it. What we do is take little, almost insignificant stands on the corners over of South Walnut and whatever that other street is, and, and, and we go and hammer a little while at the Crisis Pregnancy Center, and we've never even considered the billions of dollars that have gone out from this nation all over the earth trying to keep poor people from reproducing. It was our money that bought the transistor radios that, that were given to men. We ended up being behind millions of men being sterilized just in the country of India. Millions. And this is the first time most of you have ever thought of this. And the reason we care about Ann Wagner having children is because we think she has a good marriage and so she ought to have children. But what about Susie and Sam? You know, they don't have a good marriage. For heaven's sake, stop doing it, guys. Thank you, John. Brothers and sisters, when we make a heroine out of Corey Ten Boom, in her book, The Hiding Place, she speaks of the time during the Nazi occupation, the Nazi occupation of Holland, when her family and their pastor were asked to hide a Jewish baby. And the pastor responded to the request she records by saying, quote, no, definitely not. We could lose our lives for that Jewish child, unquote. And Corey's father then appeared at the doorway and he said, give the child to me. And the book goes on. Father held the baby close, his white beard brushing its cheek, looking into the little face with eyes as blue and innocent as the baby's. And he said, you say we could lose our lives for this child. I would consider that the greatest honor that the greatest honor that could come to my family. Brothers and sisters, what are the repercussions of us beginning to see the world through the eyes of Scripture? What are they? Are they just that we're opposed to the killing of unborn children in the womb? Or is it that you will build your next house as a ranch so that your parents can come and live with you without walking up and down stairs? <coughs> Do you honor your father and mother in their dotage? Are you ready to diaper them as they diapered you? 
And what if we're, if you're a nurse at the hospital when they starve another baby? And what if they tell you that medical procedure is that if you have a mother that's older, that you need to give her an amniocentesis so you can tell her that if she's carrying a spina bifida the baby, she can exercise the personal option to selectively kill that baby. And you say, well, I can give the amniocentesis without really personally being responsible for the decision the mother makes. And so you just engage in standard medical procedure. And what if it is your judge who presided over baby Doe? Will you confront him? And what if it's your neighbor who's getting money to kill babies? And what if it's your roommate who's having an abortion? And what if it is your friend that goes into public policy and ends up being a senator or a congressman or a congresswoman? Is there something that I can observe in you that shows that you have a worldview and that you take this world captive for biblical truth? That your heart breaks for the Indians who were robbed of the one joy they had in life? And it was our money that did it. Or are you just another lifestyle sex person who thinks sex is a nice excuse to get a rush? And you think technology has given us the freedom to, to subvert the process of the rush that God made, namely that it's a fruitful rush. And, and everything is just a lifestyle choice, you know? And you don't have a worldview, you just have personal holiness. You know? Do you have a worldview? Do you think biblically as you listen to public radio and you read magazines and you watch Seinfeld? Do you know how disgusting Seinfeld is? I didn't say that he isn't funny. Do you know how disgusting that program is? D.W. Cleverly Ford. A black preacher says, quote, We have praised the minor prophets for their preaching of social justice, but at the same time we have neglected the vast tracts of their messages which tell of judgment on account of injustice. What was Jesus' posture towards little ones, babies? In Matthew 18 it says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them. And he said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. Matthew 18, verse 10, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What was Jesus' posture towards unborn children and, and newly born children and little children? He rebuked his disciples when they tried to keep them from him. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them. In Africa today, 
There are millions upon millions upon millions of orphans. And the growth industry in Africa is using these little orphans sexually for the sake of the rush of adults. The sexual abuse, the predatory abuse of little children all across the continent. And we, so often the extent of our Christian vision for such people is to send them copies of the four spiritual laws. We have the chance to be again the church of Jesus Christ and to redefine the notion of missions, that missions consist of fighting to the death the terribly wicked policies of our nation. This is the mission of the church. And the mission of the church is to start orphanages and to raise up a godly seed. The mission of the church is to take the weak and the oppressed and to revisit the claims and the commitments of our nation that are inscribed on the Statue of Liberty. And for us as Christians to again be known as the people as we were in the early church. We were the ones, and all of the Roman Empire knew it, who went out on the hillsides and took the babies who had been abandoned on the hillsides when having babies was shameful and having girls was worthless. And the Christians took those girls in. They rescued them from sexual slavery and they raised them in homes. And of course the church grew. The church loved one another. The church took in all the little babies that weren't wanted. The church would have gone over to Africa and set up orphanages. The church would oppose the sterilization of the poor. The church would care for baby Doe and would take baby Doe out of the hospital even if all the policemen from Bloomington were after you. The church would go up to the judge and like, you know, Paul, you know, would, would say, you know, I don't know what Paul would say to the judge, but let me tell you, whatever he said, he'd be slapped for it. The church would not sit around waiting for the Republican Party to move. Let it be recorded that Blackman was an appointee of President Nixon. I'm going to read three verses and we will be done. First of all, turn with me to James chapter 1, verse 27. James chapter 1, verse 27 says this. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Turn to Amos chapter 5, verse 21. God says this, Amos 5.21 I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them and I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. 
But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And then finally, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 21. Proverbs 14, verse 21. He who despises his neighbor sins, but happy is he who is gracious to the poor. Let's pray.